Go to the book of James. James chapter 1. That's, we started the series last week that we're calling the Gospel in Action. Uh, and if you were here last week, you are aware of why we're calling it that. We didn't get to the second verse before we saw uh, practical lessons that James has for us. Probably one of the most practical books for a believer in the Word of God is the book of James. And so we're going to learn some practical ways to live out our faith uh, before the world that God has placed us into. James chapter 1, verse 2, he begins a study or a consideration of the temptations or the testings that God places us through. Uh, and this information is probably, you probably couldn't get any better or find more useful information in all the Word of God than how you should handle testing when it comes. God will bring testing into our lives. That's part of what he does. Uh, how do we manage that? And so James gives us a specific instruction on how to uh, do what seems to be very impossible Notice he says in verse 2, when God brings testing into your life, we should count it all joy. He says, deal with God's testings with joy. Uh, now, when I was growing up, I was never really a big fan of school. I did okay in school, but uh, I knew kids my age who seemed to love to be there. They loved going to school. They thought it was a great thing to do. Uh, I was the exact opposite. I never wanted to be there. And in fact, uh, get your Kleenex out because it's going to really tug at your heartstrings. For the first six weeks of school, I cried every day. <laughs> uh, my first grade, I saw my, my teacher called my mom almost every day. I said, well, <laughs> he's at it again. Uh, for the first, I, see, I know, Chris, I knew you'd feel bad about that. You got a sympathetic heart there. I get it. Oh, was he laughing? Oh, <laughs> well, never mind then. <laughs> You're all laughing. I thought you <laughs> You're laughing with me, right? <laughs> but I wasn't laughing, so. Anyway. Uh, what I found out as I progressed through school is it got even worse because teachers devise things, things that they call tests. And if you're aware, what a test is designed to do is to show a student how much they've not learned. Uh, it's a way to demonstrate in the, the degrees of failure uh, with a letter grade. It's really what tests are all about. So I studied for hours and hours. I dreaded tests. And whenever a test was coming up, I studied for every test for a long period of time. And I'll tell you, the morning of test day, uh, I didn't approach that test with joy. I approached that test with dread. Now, God says to do the exact opposite with his testing. He says, when I bring a test into your life, approach my testing with joy. Now, I suppose had it been explained to me in the right way when I was in school, I might have had a different uh, attitude toward this. Uh, I might have been able to see that these tests were actually ways to measure how much I'd learned and how much work needed to be done, not how much I was failing. And if I had been able to see it in that way, maybe I would not have dreaded them so much as I did uh, going through school. Well, as superhuman as this may sound, that is how God wants you to approach his testings. He wants to, you to approach these testings to see them as things that are done for your good, for your benefit. These are ways for you to assess your spiritual maturity and also develop traits in your life to make you a better servant of Jesus Christ. That's why God brings them in. And so as we closed last week, what we saw is the main quality developed with the test that God puts into our lives is the quality of patience. Now look at verse 3. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That's what God is trying to develop. Now, this is not the first time we have seen this in the Word of God. Hold your hand there in the book of James and go to Romans chapter 5. Go back a few books to Romans chapter 5, and when you get there, look at verse 3. In fact, put a marker in James 5. We're going to get, we're going to, uh, Romans 5, rather. We're going to look at that, another set of verses there in a few minutes. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 3. Uh, Paul says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So Paul is saying what James has also said. When God brings trial and tribulation into our lives, the purpose of that is so that you and I might develop patience. 
Now, we could do an entire series on patience. We're not going to. But God mentions that several times in the word of God. And by the way, it is a word that's only found in the New Testament. You don't find the word patience anywhere in the Old Testament. So clearly it is a quality that God wants his people, uh, born-again believers, uh, to develop in their lives. Now, I want to focus on patience for just a couple of minutes tonight. You can do a more thorough study of this on your own. Why is, so, why is God so intent on developing patience in our lives? Many reasons for that. I want to give you four reasons tonight why I believe God is trying to develop patience in each of us. So look at Romans chapter 15 now, if you would, and look at verse 5. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Here is the first reason I believe that God is attempting to develop, develop patience in the life of a believer. Romans 15, verse 5. Paul says this, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Paul gives God a title. He calls him the God of patience. We're going to see in our study this coming Sunday in the book of 2 Peter that God is long-suffering. One of the qualities that makes God who he is is this quality of patience. As you read through your Bible, if you're paying any attention at all, you can't help but be struck with how patient God is. <laughs> with mankind as a whole, uh, as with the children of Israel, as they went through the, the wilderness and so forth, with the Pharisees and the chief priests as Jesus Christ did his ministry, and with the disciples of Jesus Christ as well. And absolutely every person in this room tonight is a demonstration of God's patience. You know that in your own heart. You know how patient God is with you. <laughs> uh, and so since God wants us to be like him, God wants us to be Jesus Christ to our world, no better way to do that than to develop the qualities that Jesus, that God has and demonstrating patience is one of those ways to do that because patience makes up who he is. And God uses testings to develop that quality in us so that we look more like Jesus Christ to our world. Number two, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Go the other way. Hebrews chapter 12, a very familiar verse to many of you, I'm sure. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Paul says this, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Paul likens a Christian life to a race. But folks, it is not a sprint. It's a marathon. There is a great deal that, uh, that God wants us to do while we're here. But if we push too hard, if we get ahead of him, will not accomplish what he has for us to accomplish and may even ruin what he has for us to accomplish. Uh, as you are well aware, God has a plan. God's plan is always perfect. But also we are aware God's plan is typically not our plan. And so if we're not careful, we can get frustrated by God's plan and begin to push ahead on our own, make our own plan instead. And in doing so, we'll not finish the race that God has set up for us. And the only way to slow us down and keep us in line with where God wants us to be is for him to develop patience in our lives. The ability to take the long view and allow God to work through us in his time at his pace. And testings are the primary way that God uses to make that happen. Because when God brings a testing into your life, folks, that testing always has a purpose. God is always trying to achieve something in your life as a result of that testing. He has a plan how he wants to do it. Our part is simply to let him work. Let him do the work that he wants to do, no matter how long it takes. And so in that testing he brings into your life, you have to wait on him, and you have to be patient and allow him to do his work in his time. And as we wait and as we watch, we begin to see something. We begin to see that God's plan and God's timing is perfect. God knows exactly what he's doing. And as we experience that, 
if we allow it to occur in our life that way, we will translate that same approach to every part of our Christian walk as well. We'll realize as God is patient, as God is methodical and takes his time, we do the same thing. And these testings will teach us how to do that. Soon, soon we'll be living our lives based on God's timetable, according to his plan. Please hear me. Not walking ahead of him, but walking beside him or behind him. Whenever you get ahead of God, you've got yourself in trouble. And if we're able to do that, as God develops that patience in us, God can do through us and in us exactly what he wants to do. Here's the third reason that God wants to develop patience in us. Go back to Romans chapter 5. I had you there a minute ago. Romans chapter 5. We'll start this time in verse 4. Romans chapter 5, verse 4. And he says there, And patience, experience, and experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Do you see the order there? Patience, experience, hope. So the end result of patience is hope. As we wait on God, as we trust his plan, as we see him come through for us just like he said that he would, what does that do the next time he has us waiting for something? We'll wait in confidence. We'll wait with a quiet assurance because you know that just as he came through last time, he'll come through this time as well. And that is the definition, folks, of biblical hope. Biblical hope is not us hoping, thinking there's a good chance something might happen. That's not it at all. Hope in the scripture is a quiet confidence in God, knowing he's going to work out that plan just like he says he does. And there is a 100% chance God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And that he'll do exactly what he said in the time frame that he thinks is best. And that is based on the experience that comes from us by exercising patience. We learn that as we're patient. And God uses that experience to develop that patience in us. Our Christian life, uh, as we see from Scripture, our entire Christian life is built upon having patience as we walk the path God has given to us. Everything God wants us to achieve Uh, in us and through us, comes as we simply wait on God and trust him to have his purpose fulfilled in his time in in the right place. That's what our life is all about. Now, there's one more reason for developing patience in our Christian walk. It's actually found in James chapter 1, verse 4. So go back to the book of James now and look at verse 4. I'm going to start with verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Watch it now, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, you understand that word perfect in Scripture most oftentimes means complete or mature. So the instruction here is this. God wants to develop develop patience in us uh, as long as he needs to do it, And in doing so, as he tests us and as the afflictions occur, that's going to develop a quality in us. We're not going to get ahead of him. We're not going to get uh, too far ahead. We're not going to get uh, we're going to stay beside him or behind him and let him do the work. So the trial, the testing is going to be our way to learn how to do that. And it will mature us and make us more complete in him. And this is a good place for me to remind you once again, never pray yourself out of a trial. Never pray yourself out of a trial. One of the worst things you could possibly do is try to get out of God's testing before he's done for you and through you what he wants to do. We must be very careful as we meet here on Thursday nights and pray. And as people present needs to us, we don't pray people out of that concern that they have. We pray for God's will to be done. We pray for God's timing to be done. But don't pray them out of it. 
God has a purpose for that thing. We need to, need to stay in that trial as long as necessary for God to perform that work in us through that experience. Uh, if we pray them out or try to pray them out, uh, we don't allow patience to have her perfect work. Uh, when we try to pray somebody out of a trial or pray ourselves out of a trial, what we are really trying to do is stop the process before it's over. Let's get out of this thing. God has an intention, something he wants to do, and we're simply trying to stop that process and get out of it. Now, I know trials are not easy. I'm not standing here and saying that it's going to be an enjoyable time for you to go through that. I realize it's not. I realize there is, there is a discomfort that comes with a trial that God brings into our lives, and sometimes that discomfort is almost unbearable. But as bad as it is, please hear me, it's even worse to end the trial before it's finished. <laughs> That's even worse. Because to do that simply means you've gone through everything up to that point for nothing. We didn't develop what God wanted to develop. Uh, we're not the mature believer that God wants us to be. What's God have to do? Put you through it all over again. <laughs> you prayed your way out of it. God heard that prayer and answered it. And now we're starting back at the beginning and going through it all again. So p- part of patience is accepting the trial, not resisting the trial. And the result of handling that well is found in the rest of verse 4. Let me read it to you again. That she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. <laughs> uh, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. There is great gain in wanting nothing. There is great gain in being content. How do I learn to be, how do I develop contentment in my life? Philippians 4.11, Paul said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. Paul said, I didn't come equipped to do this. This is not standard operating equipment for any person who is born onto this earth. I learned how to be content. Contentment is not natural to us. That's why we see a world full of people who are discontent always seeking to add something to their lives that's going to satisfy them. Contentment for every person on earth is a learning process because contentment goes against your basic nature. Your basic nature says, I want what I want what I want. And contentment says, you have enough. It's all okay. Just be happy with what you've got. And what is the process that brings contentment? It is the process of testing and trials. Testing and trials. When God puts us through the worst thing, And we come out okay on the other side, maybe not unscathed, but victorious. It is then that I learn to be truly content. But that will only happen as I develop patience, the ability to accept whatever comes, however long, however much must come in order for God to do his work. But I go through that knowing God's work is being done. And I'm going to come out of that thing more content than I was when I walked in. And once I go through that a few times, what I learn Listen to me. What I learn is all I really need is him. All I really need, all I really need is him. Now, folks, that's a tough lesson. But when you get that one, a life just cruises along at that point. Now, I want to tell you something tonight. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have him. You've got him. You've got all you need in Jesus Christ. All you need. And what James is saying is the normal Christian life, please hear me again, the normal Christian life is a life of contentment. That's not the superhuman Christian life. That's the normal, everyday Christian life. 
seeing God provide, knowing he will provide, knowing he'll provide in his time, and just resting in him as a result. The normal Christian life is a life lived needing nothing, and I mean nothing but him. It is amazing to me how many things we think we need. And there are people in this world content in Jesus Christ with not even a a tenth of what you've got. And they're satisfied. They're happy. They've learned to be content. Uh, We have an issue in America. We can't be content in this country. There's too much that is offered to us that we think we need. And sometimes God's got to put you down where you don't have anything. You realize, you know what, I didn't need any of that stuff. (laughs) I was okay just with him. And that's what the trial is there to teach us. If there are believers who are discontent, if they're not satisfied with how their life is going or what they've achieved or what they possess, there's only one conclusion to draw from that. They've not learned the lesson of the testing yet. They haven't learned the lesson that patience, of the testing and patience that is provided by that test. And so a dissatisfied Christian is a Christian who's going to have to go through the fire at least one more time. <laughs> if you are discontent, expect trial. If you're not happy with the way God is dealing with your life, expect a fire to come. And if you don't get it that time, you'll go through it again. And if you don't get it that time, you'll go through it again. And God will put you through it as many times as necessary until that believer learns to be content with him and only him. Because God knows life is best for you when you are able to settle that thing and be content just with him. It is a wise Christian who accepts the trial and learns patience from that trial. Because once they learn that, the trials begin to slow down. You see less and less. It's more of a refresher course after that. It's not the main lesson anymore. And once you learn that God is all you need, you will have a contentment that only those who have learned the same lesson will ever achieve, a life where all that is needed is him. And so if, really, if we are really going to live the Christian life the way God wants us to, James puts patience at the top of that list. It makes us like him. And it makes us content with him. And then he adds another quality to that. Look at verse 5, if you would. He says there, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now, like patience, we could do a many-week series on this concept of wisdom and the need for it in the life of a child of God. The first thing I would like for us to do is understand what wisdom is. And I will start by defining what it is not. Wisdom is not learning facts. That is not what wisdom is. Wisdom is not having an encyclopedia in your head that can, you can spew out facts whenever the, any topic is introduced. In Scripture, that's knowledge. That's not wisdom. And we are encouraged to get knowledge, but knowledge alone is not enough. We must also learn how to accurately apply that knowledge in whatever situation we find ourselves. And the application of that knowledge is wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and do the right thing with it. Uh, by the way, in Scripture, we see that wisdom is a moral quality. It's those, those who are right with God are called wise, and those who are out of step with God are called foolish. So those who are right and able to seek God and, and, and do seek God, those are the wise ones. The foolish ones are those who seek to get their own way instead of God's way. So the wiser that a person is, the more in tune with God they are, because the more able they are to see what God has revealed to them through his word and through other believers and through experience and use that information, use that knowledge to draw him closer to them and draw closer to him themselves. Therefore, here's what Solomon says, the wisest man who ever lived. Here's what he said, and he should know. Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, Solomon says, get wisdom. 
The principal thing, Solomon says, the wisest man who ever lived, who has the experience, he says wisdom is the principal thing. Get it. Everything else you may seek in life, any material thing, any relational goal you may have, wisdom supersedes all of it. Get wisdom first. The first thing we need is the ability to take the knowledge that God has given to us and make sense of that knowledge in our lives. So how do we obtain this wisdom? Well, it's not something we get on our own. Uh, So it doesn't depend on our intellectual ability, our intellectual skills. Uh, That's not any part of it. Look at verse 5 again. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. (laughs) Well, that's pretty simple. We make things so difficult, don't we? He says, if you want wisdom, ask God for wisdom. It is just that simple. And what that means is there is no believer who should lament that they don't have the wisdom that they need. Or they don't have the wisdom that somebody else has. They can't complain to God that he's given wisdom to others and not given it to them. This is something that is available to everybody if they simply will ask God for it. So here's the question. When we pray, uh, whenever time that is, as we pray to God, what do we ask him for? What do you seek from him? What's on the top of your list when you're making your request to God? Well, if we abide by James's words here in verse 5, it should not be relief from affliction or good health or long life or more money or more friends or anything else. The first thing on our list of requests to God should be that God would grant us wisdom. That's what we ought to be asking for. It is the principal thing that we seek from him. Now, I don't know how exactly God answers that request. And I'm not sure exactly that, uh, how he answers that in your life specifically. But I do know two starting points for it. I'd like you to turn to the book of Psalms, if you would. Go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. And when you get there, look at verse 10. And I'm sure, again, for many of you Bible students, this is a very familiar verse, or at least a very familiar concept to you. But I'd like you to see it in black and white tonight. Psalm 111, verse 10. David says this. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if I ask God for wisdom, the first thing God is going to do for me is reveal himself to me in a way where I will understand the best I can exactly who he is and exactly how I should relate to him. That's the first thing he's going to do. He's going to reveal himself to me in a way that I can't miss. If I ask for wisdom, God is going to teach me in any, whichever way he does that, however he might choose, he's going to teach me how to fear him. To get myself in right relationship with him. And if I ask for wisdom, that's the first thing he's going to do. Now go to the book of Colossians. Go to the book of Colossians and catch Colossians chapter 2. Here's the second thing God is going to do if you ask him for wisdom. I don't know the whole process. I know these are the starting points. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 2. It says that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he's going to do, if I pray for wisdom, the next thing he's going to do is draw me closer to Jesus Christ. Somehow he's going to pull me closer to him. To really know wisdom is to know Jesus Christ. And so I don't know how God's going to do this in your life. I don't know how he's going to do it in my life. But if I ask for wisdom, when I ask for wisdom, God is going to orchestrate events in my life and bring people into my life that are going to help me learn Jesus Christ in a way that I've never known him before. And although it should go without saying, please note that wisdom does not come from anywhere else. It comes from God alone. 
There is no other source for wisdom that James refers to. I want to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, the disputer of this world? Hath, God, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Here's the inclination we have. We're looking for wisdom. We want to be more wiser. And so we see these people around us as seem to be ones who have wisdom. And so we go to those folks and seek wisdom from them. God says that is the exact place not to go. That all the world would consider wisdom is nothing but foolishness in the eyes of God. When you see these folks out there who proclaim to be wise and they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, God says they're fools. That's what he says. God says it's foolishness. Wisdom comes from God alone. And that's the only place to seek it because that's the only place you're going to find it. Now, three things about this request back here in James chapter 1. Notice three things about this request that we make. First of all, it says uh, in verse 5, If any of you ask, like wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Now, some of you might react to that word. You might hate that word because that's not what you want to be. I get it. This is one time, folks, where liberal is okay, all right? <laughs> one time, if you, if you strain at that word, right now, it's okay to be liberal. Because, you see, in this particular case, that word means freely or without restraint or without limit. In other words, God is not going to answer that prayer with a small amount of wisdom. He's going to answer that prayer with a great amount of wisdom. He's going to give you so much wisdom, uh, no matter how much that might be, he's going to overwhelm you with the wisdom that he provides to you. So when you ask him for wisdom, you're going to get a complete supply of wisdom. You're going to get all that you need and beyond because he's going to give that wisdom to you, it says, liberally. Next, look at the verse again. That giveth to all men liberally. It says there he gives that to every person who asks for it. Anybody who comes to him and asks for wisdom will receive it. Now, we have this picture in our heads, and I think it's because it's how the world has set, is set up. We have this picture in our heads that there are levels of believers. Like there's the upper echelon of believers, then there's a the middle class of believers, then there's a the lower class of believers. Uh, so people like Spurgeon and Moody and those guys, they are on the, the upper echelon, and therefore they get things that you and I don't get. Folks, wipe that image out of your head. That is simply not the case. If Spurgeon asks for wisdom, he gets the exact amount of wisdom that he needs. And if I walk in asking for wisdom, God gives me the exact amount of wisdom that I need. And if I need more wisdom than Spurgeon needs, God is going to give it to me because he'll give to all men liberally. So if you go in asking for wisdom, God's going to give it to you. That's number two. Here's number three. Look at the verse again. Uh, Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. God will not upbraid you when you ask for it. That word upbraid means to criticize severely or to find fault with or to reproach severely or to scold vehemently. It comes from an old English word that means to snatch up. Uh, you might remember back in the days before this was considered child abuse. If a child was doing something that the parent didn't like, the, child, the parent would walk behind that kid and grab them by the collar and lift them up <laughs> and stop them from doing what they were doing. Now, you can't do that today, obviously, because the kid was screaming bloody murder and the cops would be at your door. However, back then, you could do that. That's what it's referring to here. That's what it's talking about. Uh, when God talks about not abrading you, uh, what it's saying is when you ask for it, he's going to give it to you. He's not going to bawl you out. He's not going to yell at you. He's going to give you exactly what you need. 
He wants you to have it. He's not going to abrade you or be critical of you for asking for it. And once you ask for it, he'll give you all that you need. Now, one other qualifier to this. Look at verse 6. I'm going to read verse 5 with it. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But, 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 let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. There's the final qualification, folks. That's the final requirement that must be made and must be met in order for us to get wisdom. God says, ask in faith. Ask in faith. Come to him believing that God will provide that wisdom to you. Now, that shouldn't take a great deal of faith because God has told you he wants you to have it. Uh, he wants you to have that wisdom. Therefore, and he has also said that if you ask for it, he'll give it to you. So there's not a lot of faith involved here. We simply need to know those things and believe those things and ask God for wisdom. And if we do that, the wisdom is ours. Now, here's my opinion. And this is worth as much as your opinion is. But here's what I think. I believe there's a scarcity of wisdom among God's people. I think God's people do things without rhyme or reason. They do things that make no sense whatsoever. And I'll include myself in that category a time or two. And we can find all sorts of reasons why people do that and why that might be the case. But to me, the bottom line is people do those things. Believers do those things because they lack wisdom. They lack wisdom. They may know the facts of the Bible. They don't know how to apply those facts. And if that's the case, those things are happening because those folks simply are not asking God for the wisdom that he has for them. They're letting it lay and not asking for it. So there is a blank check sitting there for every one of you tonight. It's a blank check of wisdom. And many believers let that thing sit unsigned and uncashed and sort of let it lay there rather than cash it in. God says, if you ask in faith, it shall be given you. Look at it again. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. And verse 5 says, it shall be given him. So by faith, ask God for it and God will provide that to you. Just believe before you ask, it'll do it. And again, that shouldn't be difficult based on what we've seen up to verse 6. Now look at the rest of verse 6. He said, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Now that word waver comes from the same English root as the word wave. That's why Peter uses this uh, illustration that he gives us uh, of, of being on a boat and being on the sea and so forth, because that's really what it's all about. If somebody wants something from God, if they seek something from God, or just in their daily walk, if they approach God without full faith, uh, with some doubt in their mind as they seek, as they ask, they're like a boat on rough seas. And that's the illustration he gives. He used to watch a show years ago called The Deadliest Catch. Uh, it was a show about men and women who were out on the ocean uh, uh, harvesting crabs. Now, I stopped watching because only so many times you can watch guys pull crabs out of the ocean. I've seen this all before kind of thing, you know. But for a while I watched that. One of the fascinating things about that show to me was how those boats were thrown around on that water. <laughs> amazing to me on those high seas i was amazed those sailors could stay on the boat i was amazed those boats stayed afloat and didn't capsize uh, those ways to throw those boats here and there in all directions raise them up drop them again and all the rest of it and sometimes those waves were so strong uh, it actually set those boats off course I had to try and find their way back on course again to get themselves where they wanted to go get that picture in your head and that's exactly what Paul, uh, james is talking about here when he talks about that person who has no faith they are like, uh, like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed up and down and all around because they have no mooring. They have no stability. Thrown up and down and side to side. They are lifted up and dropped and set off course altogether. 
Now, if that characterizes a life of a believer, if life seems to go in all directions with no rhyme or reason to it, the reason is clear. They're not living by faith. They're living by something else. I talk to believers all the time. I see many believers who fall directly into the category of James chapter 1 and verse 6. All over the place. Making plans one day, making a different plan the next day, going up this route one time, taking a different route the next time, and all the while wondering why God won't lead them and guide them in the way they want to go. <laughs> you know why it is? They're not seeking in faith. They're trying to do it themselves. And God says, you can't do this yourself. <laughs> if I find myself finding routes to take and getting messed up on that route and finding another route and finding roadblocks all the way along, I must not be living by faith. I must be trying to figure things out for myself. Faith in God is the stabilizer in our lives. That's your anchor. When you've got faith in him, that gives you solidity. That gives you stability. If I place my faith in him, I don't need to look anywhere else. There's no other direction I need to look. I don't need help from anywhere else. I put my faith in him, and he guides me exactly where he wants me to go. But if my faith isn't there, then I begin to look in different directions. I begin to seek different ways to go because I don't have faith that God's going to lead me in the right way. And so I'll listen to other people. I'll listen to different directions. I'll do all sorts of things because I don't have any kind of direction in my life. And so I go this way. I go that way. I go another way. And soon I'm right back where I started and doing it all over again. The only way to remedy that is to set my gaze on the most reliable place. You know where that's at. Put it on him. Set your gaze on him. Just fix your eyes there. If you put your eyes there, God has the full picture. God knows exactly what is best for you. God has a perfect plan for you. God will never lead you in the wrong direction. Never. Never. It may seem like it because your ways and our, his ways and our ways are not the same, but he will never lead you in the wrong direction. If you seek him in faith, he'll always put you on the right path and lead you all the way wrong. And the only way to live where we're not being tossed by in a hundred different ways, in a hundred different directions, is to set your eyes and your hope and your faith on him. Put all your eggs in one basket. Put all your eggs in one basket. Trust God to lead you and pull you through with no backup plan, with no plan B. And I realize for believers who need to be in charge and need to be in control, that is the scariest thing to do, that is the scariest thing they possibly could ever do. But I will tell you without any qualifiers to it, that is the only way to live the Christian life effectively. When you put full faith in him and if you want to allow God to take you where he wants you to go, allow him to do with you what he wants you to do, allow him to call you in the right direction and follow that call. That's the only way to make it happen is to keep your eyes on him. Anything less we do and what you are, you're on the high seas with no rudder and no anchor being tossed all over the place. <laughs> In fact, look at verse 7. He says, For let not that man think that he shall receive, underline it, anything from the Lord. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. If you don't approach him in faith, don't expect anything from God. If he gives you something, it's just a bone he's thrown to you. It's not the full uh, meal. Uh, there's so much more available. A person without faith in him receives nothing of any value from the Lord. Folks, that is a sobering thought. And I'll speak for myself. I've been saved long enough to know I need a great many things from God. It seems like I need more from him every day. And I need those things every day. I need them all through the day. I'll need them for the rest of my life. And without faith, I'll get none of it. I'll be stuck with nothing. 
and I can ask all I want to, but if I ask God with a plan B in mind, in the back of my mind, I will wind up empty. I know this. I know this. The believer who wants something for God has got to clear their mind of every other plan and accept his plan. His has got to be the only plan that we allow to operate in our lives. So as we close, I want to ask you a very strange question. (laughs) Where are all your eggs tonight? Where are all your eggs tonight? Uh, Do you have an alternate plan in mind just in case God's plan doesn't work out? You have something else planned just in case it doesn't go the way you want it to. You've got a plan B set up that you can kind of take that route instead. Well, if that's the case, get ready for rough waters. Get ready for rough waters. You're going to have a time of it before it's all done. It does not have to be that way. Uh, Make the decision tonight that it is God and nothing else. It is God's plan and no other plan. That either God does it or it doesn't get done. Make that your commitment. Make that your mindset. And then with that mindset, go to him and ask for him him whatever you need. Say, Lord, I've got no plan except you. I just want you to do for me what you want to do with me. And you know what? You'll get more from him than you ever bargained for. You'll open those windows up, and as Malachi says, he'll pour blessings on you. He'll drown you with them. But it starts by saying, Lord, it's your plan. It's your plan. No plan for mine, just yours. Ask in faith, nothing wavering, and you'll get all you need from the Lord.